0: For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. The Oklahoma Turnpike Authority is moving forward with a controversial expansion. Commissioners voted to resume work on the $5 billion access project, despite protesters at Tuesday's meeting. The project was put on hold after a court found the agency violated the state's Open Meetings Act. Ryan, is the extension now a done deal? Absolutely not.
1: <laughs> we are a very long way from ground being broken, even, even if there weren't legal challenges. I mean, we're talking about a 15-year process here. I mean, we are a decade away from ground being broken, from homes being actually uh, you know seized uh, by eminent domain and, and wiped out and created uh Uh, space for this turnpike to be placed. So we're a very long ways away from that happening, even if there weren't going to be these protests. But I think that we we have not seen the end of the legal battles. The Supreme Court still has to decide on the validity of bonds that were issued. Uh, Even though the uh, district judge, Tim Olson from Seminole County, who sat in the case in Cleveland County, said that the Turnpike Authority had violated the Open Meetings Act, there still remains an outstanding question of whether that violation of the Meetings Act uh, Open Meetings Act should lead to criminal charges. I mean, I think that that's something that, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say that a prosecutor isn't looking at that. Uh, you know, I think a prosecutor has to look at that. And frankly, as, as Oklahomans, we want, you know, strong enforcement of that. I, don't, you know, I hate to see anybody go to jail or prison, but, you know, the, the, we have criminal penalties uh, for violations of the Open Meetings Act in the law for a reason. So I think that, that question is unresolved. They've spent millions of dollars already on this project but they spent millions of dollars on a project that was ultimately undone by a district court judge. Uh, and so I think you're gonna have some potential disputes between private parties, uh, many of whom are former uh, Turnpike Authority employees. Uh, you know, that's you know the revolving door from public to private sector um, that have been receiving millions of dollars in payments for contracted services. Mm-hmm based on a plan that was ultimately said was invalid because there was a violation of the Open Meetings Act. So you may still have some conflict between private parties that are being paid or expect to be paid under contract uh, in the state. Neva.
2: I think, Ryan, you're exactly right. And I think the fact that uh, these commissioners, they voted unanimously <laughs> to resume this work as if really nothing had happened. And I think the question, uh, certainly you had more than 30 uh, folks that were pro- protesters that uh, have opposed this from the get-go. Uh, they were at this meeting earlier this week. Uh, one of the members uh, uh, spoke and basically you know, said very much what you just said. I mean, uh, she made the point that... Uh, that they have already uh, been found to be willfully violating the law based on um, what's been brought to them and the issues that are, um, bef- that are related to that, uh, certainly have the possibility of criminal prosecution. And I think uh, there's already been comments by uh, the, the uh, these group of homeowners, the protesters and their attorneys that uh, that they are pushing uh, for this to at least be addressed and, and seriously looked at. So um, again, they come to a meeting, they, they continue to uh, expend money on something that has uh, um, basically been stopped dead in its tracks just weeks ago and, and uh, seem to be in the mode at the uh, Turnpike Authority of just forging ahead with the assumption that somehow they'll just be able to override this, overcome this, withstand whatever comes along, even um, another adverse ruling from the Supreme Court, which as you say, Ryan, is still uh, still sitting there uh, waiting, uh, uh, waiting for action. So I think, uh, and when you talk about these former employees, uh, uh, now there's certainly more scrutiny on some of the Uh, uh, some of the vendors some of the folks that are uh, have done professional uh, services and one company in particular that that had the two former high level uh, uh, transportation officials in it I mean the uh, they approved uh, these commissioners approved another six million and change uh, to them at this meeting which brought I think the tab to about 20 million that they've been paid related to Access Oklahoma a a a Oklahoma Turnpike Extension plan that is riddled with questions and problems that are still not fully resolved.
0: Oklahoma's incoming attorney general says investigating the misuse of pandemic relief funds will be a priority of his administration. Gettner Drummond, who is getting sworn in on Monday, says it's part of his goal to protect taxpayer dollars. Neva Drummond and Governor Stitt aren't exactly allies, so how could this impact the administration?
2: Well, I think, uh, I think we have um, a, a new four-year term. We have new, uh, new folks and new faces, uh, certainly a new attorney general. And I think that uh, in the instance of taking a look at this uh, uh, probe of the uh, Pandemic Relief Fund, not a surprise. I think uh, uh, that uh, Attorney General-elect Drummond... Um, made uh, this point throughout uh, his campaign for attorney general that one of the uh, one of the things that uh, uh, he said was often was the fact that there had been too much scandal, too much secre- secrecy over the uh, the past several years, and that he was going to be a change agent that was going to uh, um, get to the bottom of some of these issues. So you know, you ha- and I think we have to remember that in the instance of the. Uh, of of these relief funds uh, that the governor's emergency education relief funds that that uh, have been called into question with some of the purchases that were questionable we have already seen uh, a federal audit that has basically asserted these same things that there that the money was not spent on educational purposes that it did uh, we went for months uh, um, late last year talking about this i mean all of the things that have been drawn into question the fact that uh, um, that federal regulations had not been followed and again this this draws in a new uh, a new superintendent of uh, public instruction as of next week uh, with ryan walters who was the person who approved these purchases in his role at the time as the, the education secretary? So, um, it's it's been months in the making. It's again one of these unresolved, lingering, serious issues that will be addressed. I think uh, as as the um, as the new attorney general is sworn in on Monday, I think we will see. Uh, it appears that they plan on hitting the ground running and this is going to be one of the very first things that they pay a lot of attention to
1: right yeah we've got an independent attorney general uh for the first time in a while now uh and this is this is something that i you know what what governor stitt sees in the attorney general is is uh in the past he's seen an ally you know he was able to appoint his ally john o'connor to come in uh take over after mike hunter stepped down and resigned uh so john o'connor comes in and he's a he's a you know, unabashed, unapologetic ally of Governor Stitt, and everybody knew it. Heck, they had campaign commercials featuring one another. Um, but now, you know, it's a new day. John O'Connor was defeated by Gittner Drummond in that Republican primary, and he was running on this issue of we need an we need an independent Attorney General, and so that's exactly what we've got right now. Um, and you you mentioned the U.S. Department of Education audit that the incoming Attorney General is talking about. You know, that found that the state of Oklahoma did uh, not follow federal regulations and that Ryan Walters, uh, you know, who is a, a STIT appointee, education secretary at the time, about to become superintendent of public instructions next week, he approved these purchases, directly approved these purchases. And then think of the timing. So that happens. And then in August, uh, gov- the governor of, uh, of, of Oklahoma and the Oklahoma attorney general file suit against this company, Clio Incorporated, Uh, saying that they're the one who defrauded the state of Oklahoma. Um, And, you know, forget the buck stops here. You know, uh, the buck stops wherever the lawsuit stops. They filed that lawsuit accusing them of fraud, which then gave Ryan Walters uh, and Governor Stitt a great talking point whenever they were asked about this by the media throughout the entire campaign. And remember, uh, I mean, it was just a a month or so ago, but we were— And a very hotly competitive campaign at the time, both for Ryan Walters race that he ultimately won and Governor Stitt's race that he ultimately won by sizable margins. But at the time, people didn't know that. And so they were able to say, well, you know, that's not us. And it was this company that defrauded the state of Oklahoma and we're suing them for fraud. We're taking care of it. But they never served the lawsuit, so they wouldn't filed it, but they never served it. And if you don't serve the lawsuit, uh, then the lawsuit just sits there. It's, it's, you know, the court can't have jurisdiction over somebody that doesn't have notice that they're being sued and seeing that you're being sued in the newspaper is not the same thing as being served uh, personal service that's required for jurisdiction. So it does seem more and more like that that was a political play. I uh, had nothing to do with a, with a legal argument that the state was going to advance because I'd like to think if the state had a real case against fraud, that we'd prosecute that quickly. Uh, and we would do everything we could to get the state's money back from anybody that defrauded the people of Oklahoma. But instead, it was filed, never served. It became political fodder. I expect that, you know, uh, Gettner Drummond is going to be looking at this. If there's not fraud, it'll be dismissed quickly. Uh, And, you know, he'll continue to look at other state officials. And, you know, now you've got, you know, Governor Stitt that's going to have to answer for this. And then Ryan Walters, uh, who's about to be sworn into one office, but already apparently has eyes on another office, uh, thinking about running for governor himself at some point. And, you know, it's when you build yourself up like that, you become a very big target and people for more scrutiny. And I think that that's what we're going to see over the next, next well, probably four years under the Drummond administration.
2: And I think you're right. I mean, I think that uh, Gettner Drummond has already said that he is prepared to move forward on this. If there, if there is, in fact, evidence that shows the company was uh, at fault, uh, that there was fraud involved, and if not, uh, they'll move forward in some other direction.
0: And what what does it mean for other possibilities of maybe something about the Swadley's investigation? Do you think Gettner Drummond might actually go against the governor on things like that?
2: I think Gettner Drummond has made it pretty clear uh, at the outset that he that uh, nothing is uh, nothing is off the table. I mean, he basically is coming in. It's a cl- it's a new team. It's a clean slate. Uh, as as you described him, Ryan, uh, uh, independent. I mean, he is someone. He got elected to this office. He he views uh, he views it as something where uh, he needs to get in and get to the bottom of a lot of questions that have been swirling now for months, and in some cases uh, for more than a year. And so I think we're I think we're at a place where we'll see how contentious that becomes and what uh, you know what ensues. I mean, obviously the governor um, not only is going to begin a second term. But, you know, all of his uh, cabinet folks will have to be reconfirmed. I mean, there'll be changes. We'll see a lot of changes, maybe in agency heads and other and other uh, folks who uh, have uh, been on his team uh, for the you know, all are part of the, the the first term. So it's a time for a lot of change. I think uh, we'll see that in tandem with the legislature coming back in February and all that will ensue uh, surrounding just the natural sequence of events that will come about here in the next 60 days.
1: And I think Gettner Drummond would push back on, uh, on um, ca- characterizing it as uh, going after the governor and I know that that's not necessarily what she meant Michael but I think that right. the, I think that Kendra Drummond would very much push back on that because what he sees it as is doing his job mm-hmm. you know being an independent attorney general he works for the people of Oklahoma he, he didn't run on a ticket with anybody and he really I, I really believe is going to pursue you know truth and justice wherever he sees that now Will I agree with that over the next four years in every instance? Probably not, but I think that what he's saying at the outset and what he said at the campaign from the very beginning uh, is that he is going to be his own actor uh, and wherever that leads him, even if it puts him in opposition to people in his own party sometimes, he's not afraid to go there.
2: Well, and let's and let's remember, this is, uh, this is a man who uh, ran twice for this uh, office. I mean, he has been very focused on wanting to be the chief law enforcement uh, person in the state of Oklahoma as the attorney general. Of Oklahoma, so um, he he clearly is set and focused on uh, taking the oath and beginning his duties. And as you say, Ryan, I think it I think it is with a wide open view of let's get in, do the job as prescribed by the Constitution, and move forward and see where that see where that takes us.
0: Well, unlike the situation in Congress, state Republicans had no problem returning their leaders into their positions. Senators reelected Senate President Pro Tem Greg Treat and representatives kept Charles McCall as the longest running House Speaker in state history. Ryan, what do you think of Treat and McCall retaining their positions?
1: Well, I think that it was never any question that Speaker Charles McCall was going to be Speaker and he was going to, you know, uh, undertake this uh this title now is the longest serving speaker in the state's history i mean you know what an incredible thing to do especially in a time whenever uh politics are incredibly divisive it's it's a very tough uh atmosphere out and of the term capital. limits and term limits your your ability to stay in that job for multiple terms uh is is really impressive and i think that it speaks to you know for somebody who came into the legislature without a real political background and and uh to now have uh Won and then held on to the speaker's office for as long as he had. That's, uh, I think, an impressive uh, show of political skill out at the state capitol when you're dealing with a Republican majority that's very big and oftentimes unwieldy. Um, I think, and these these votes that took place earlier this week are largely ceremonial. Mm-hmm. I mean, so we knew what the outcomes were going to be. We knew that Greg Treat was going to be reelected as pro temp in the state senate. His path there, though, was a lot different than Speaker McCall's. Uh, his his ability to serve as President Pro Temp again, I think, was called into question. Uh, he won, by what I understand, is a very narrow majority among his caucus uh, to be reelected and nominated from his caucus. And, and that's, I, I think that that speaks, and we've talked about this uh, a lot on this program, it speaks to the dynamics in the Senate and the House and how they're different right now. There seems to be a much more unified Republican caucus in the House than there does to be in the Senate. Uh, and I think that that makes Senator Treat's job more difficult moving into this legislative session. But again, he was able to be reelected. Uh, he's got uh, his leadership tre- team that he has a lot of trust in. Uh, and I, I, I think that it's going to be up to them to build, even though they have a supermajority, to kind of maintain that supermajority uh, on, on critical votes, especially on things like taxes uh, and school choice. And, you know, and looking at the, the U.S. House, you mentioned the U.S. House, Michael, it's, it's really uh, – quite astounding that we're at this point where we've had multiple ballots, I think over six now. Kevin McCarthy, uh, who was the presumptive United States Speaker of the House, is, you know, continuing to fight, but seems to be out of the running. I said earlier before we taped, I said, you, have you ever been to a funeral and the corpse doesn't know they're dead? <laughs> that's, that's kind of what we're at right now. And, and some of the outcomes of this is we've heard, I was getting calls from people in D.C. yesterday uh, saying, is, is uh, you know, is Tom Cole? Uh, in consideration. Is Frank Lucas in consideration? You know, people that have been in the U.S. House for a very long time, have a lot of respect of their colleagues, uh, and, you know, that's kind of where the Republican caucus seems to be going right now. And as we tape, we haven't had resolution on this, but, um, you know, how cool would it be even though I disagree with their politics in in many instances, how cool would it be for the state of Oklahoma to once again have a speaker speaker of the the House? house. (laughs) Yeah, and of course,
0: we're recording this on Thursday morning. Uh, They resume in about 20 minutes, and we'll know a little bit more later on. But, uh, Neva, your thoughts on either the state or the U.S. Congress?
2: Well, I think uh, I think this is fascinating what's happening in Congress. And I think, uh, um, you know, this is kind of familiar territory, unfortunately, for Kevin McCarthy, because back in 2015, um, he was unable then to secure enough votes to win the speakership. And that's when Paul Ryan uh, became the compromise candidate. So uh, um, he served then as speaker from... Uh, 2015 to 2019. So uh, so it's not uncharted, unprecedented waters, but it's certainly uh, something that uh, I think many um, in Washington expected that there would be some bumps in the road, that, that there would be some give and take, there would be a lot of concession have to be made uh, to this group that now seems to be a pretty solid 20 votes that uh, are intractable on saying they are not going to vote for Kevin McCarthy for Speaker, no matter what. So if that remains the case, then then we are going to have to see who the fallback candidates are. And I think um, uh, Bloomberg and other uh, outlets uh, uh, in the last 24 hours have uh, have had a list, a short list of five names, and Tom Cole being uh, number two uh, behind Steve Scalise of Louisiana as uh, a very likely prospect to uh, uh, to be a, a fallback uh, candidate uh, and a potential House speaker. So, uh, and I think I think you're right, Michael. I think it is anytime you have this kind of national um, stage and this kind of. Uh, uh, event g- unfolding, I mean, on an hourly basis, and to have one of our own in, in our congressional delegation uh, this prominent. And and we have to remember, I mean, this is someone who uh, is a high profile. I mean, Tom Cole is on two of the most important committees in the House. He's on appropriations and rules. I mean, he is, uh, he's been there 20 years. He's the longest serving indigenous member of Congress and and someone who is well respected. I mean, someone that knows the ropes politically. And you know, when you talk about being a speaker, it's about uh, it's about being able to do more than just uh, uh, deal with the policy side and inside uh, just the halls of Congress. On that on that dimension, it's about being able to make sure you raise the money that you have the political. Um, you have the political uh, clout and vehicle to be able to go out and help folks get reelected in two years. I mean, it's a never-ending proposition in the House of uh, House of Representatives that they're always raising money, always running for re-election. And so uh, Tom Cole becomes someone who Folks that have been around the, that building for um, now decades know he is someone well prepared and could assume the speakership and and do an exemplary job. So who knows what will happen in the next 24, 48 hours? But uh, uh, the fact that they've taken six votes unsuccessfully uh, to get us to to have a speaker. Uh, I think the last time, 100 years ago or whenever yeah. it was, it was nine votes. Uh, you know, before <laughs> before mm-hmm. they finally uh, had a speaker in in that contentious atmosphere. So uh, this is fascinating, and I hope that uh, Oklahomans are paying a little more than uh, average attention to this just because of what it. Uh, uh, what it says about our state and our leaders, and what we bring to the table nationally uh, in the United States Senate and the and the United States House.
0: And you mentioned a Chickasaw citizen, Tom Cole. He would be uh, the uh, highest. Ranking indigenous per third in line for mm-hmm. presidency, which would be yeah. a huge deal.
1: Yeah, yeah, it'd, it'd be it'd be enormous And Oklahoma's delegation is has been split. I mean, we've uh, well not split, but we have one outlier and in the new United States congressman from the second district, Josh Burkine has been the lone no vote uh, against Kevin McCarthy. Uh, assuming the speakership and there is a sense, I mean, um, you know, if. If Kevin McCarthy had assumed the speakership, which seems unlikely at this point, uh, Tom Cole and Frank Lucas were up for you know, pretty uh, pretty great uh, committee Stephanie chairmanships. Bice, and who has Stephanie Rice as, been as been well. A strong, been a strong ally sp- of Kevin McCarthy and from, so, the, from if, the beginning. And so, if McCarthy doesn't get that, I, you know, I wonder what that does to their prospects of being able to continue to secure those key committee positions uh, in Congress because um, you know that's that's one of the things that we'd been talking about up to this point that especially Tom Cole was going to be, you know basically the top budget uh, um, uh, congress person in, in all of Congress.
2: Well, and one thing about uh, newly elected Congressman Burkeen Ber- from the second District, uh, he was supported. Uh, by the freedom caucus this group uh, many of whom are in this uh, this uh, uh, 20 that uh, that have kind of spun out and not Being willing to go along and uh, and give Kevin McCarthy the uh, speakership that he thought he was going to be able to uh, to get may still pull it off, but as you say, Ryan, the fact that they've gone six votes and it it's not moved yet uh, seems more and more unlikely that that might be the case. But in this instance, I think that. It will be interesting to see how that puts a freshman congressman from Oklahoma who has been on the outside of this whole process uh, uh, and very vocal about it, uh, where that puts him long term in terms of his ability to – um, take care of not only the second district here in Oklahoma, but be a player in in uh, Washington D.C. And he
0: can't even be sworn in until he actually until the speaker actually gets elected. So yeah,
1: this this whole thing is holding so much up. I mean, people can't be sworn yeah, in; they're not official members of Congress not yet. Not official, that's right. Uh, they're not getting security briefings. There, there's a lot of things that aren't happening because we don't have definitive leadership in the House. I mean, this needs to be resolved, and it needs to be resolved soon uh, because the the House needs to get to work. That's right. The Senate's there, the House is there, they just need to get to work.
0: Senator Jim Inhofe ended his six-decade political career on January 3rd. As Oklahoma's longest-serving Senator, Inhofe was first elected to his seat in 1994. But beforehand, he also spent eight years in the U.S. House, four years as Tulsa's mayor, and ten years in the state legislature. Neva, what are your thoughts on this end of an era for Oklahoma? It
2: is an end of an era, and I think we talked about it uh, uh, before we took our... uh, break at the end during yeah. the holidays but I think uh, I think that we have to again say what an extraordinary career that uh, Jim Menhoff had. Uh, how much he did for the state of Oklahoma and for the United States. And his legacy, certainly, uh, from a military standpoint of being able to uh, to really push uh, the military budgets, to be able to push uh, in the tra- area of transportation and, and, and do the things that he was passionate about and do them well. And I think that uh, it was interesting that the annual defense bill, um, the 1.7 trillion dollar, I think it was, spending bill uh, that was voted on. It was his last vote in the Senate, and it now, for posterity, will carry his name. Mm-hmm. And so, I think it's this legacy that we that we saw, and that the respect that we saw again from those who have. Um, that have dealt with him as colleagues, have dealt with him uh, from a staff standpoint, dealt with him uh, through across Oklahoma in so many ways, and um, I think I think all of us would uh, agree that uh, that we not only wish him well, but hope that the, what he described as an opportunity for he and his uh, wife Kay to be able to spend some time to travel mm-hmm. to enjoy uh, to enjoy a much more relaxed schedule than he has for all of his public uh, life and career. Uh, will be it will will be a wonderful time for them and their families, and uh, um, I think I probably speak for many in saying we wish him the very best.
1: Ryan, well, you know, he's a he's a politician and a public servant from a different age. Uh, and, you know, I think that what that has translated itself into, if you if you look at the way that he's conducted himself in Congress, everybody looks at the snowball incident. But but in general, in Congress, I think members in both parties that had served with him for a very long time would say, here's a decent person. Here's a person who, who put a high priority and a high value on collegiality. Um, and uh, the other thing that he did that is often uh, looked down upon these days, especially by Republicans, is that. He saw you know bringing home por- the pork as mm-hmm. something good. Uh, bring you home, know, the bring yeah. home the bacon. Bring home the bacon. You know you know pork barrel politics. I mean he saw it as good and 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 it should be. I mean he should go to the. Capital, anybody that we elect to send to Washington, D.C., I don't care what party they're from, they should go up there and do their very best to bring home as much of Oklahoma's tax dollars, if not more, uh, as possible and make good investments in our state. That's one of the things that they're there to do. Jim Jim Inhofe understood that, and he he brought home billions of dollars over the years, and in particular in defense and aerospace, uh, to the state of Oklahoma. That's just transformed the transportation, lens, if you look and at the I-40 cross, cross down. And, and that was, you know, that if if he hadn't done that, Oklahoma wasn't in that highway plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he specifically went in and added Oklahoma to that highway plan. Uh, you know, a couple of things, just personal things that I think, um, you know, I look at and and, uh, and appreciative of, of Senator Inhofe. One, as, as a Wiley Post buff, I love the fact that he retraced Wiley Post uh, tra- trip around the world in an airplane. How cool is that? I don't know of anybody else that's ever done that, but to have an Oklahoma sitting United States senator to do that, that, that's really cool. And on January 6th, Uh, when so many of the rest of uh, the Republican delegation in the United States Senate tucked their tails and didn't know what to do. Uh, Did they offend the president? Did they concede to the mobs? He said, you know, even before that, it's our job to certify the election. And he voted to certify the, the election and the results of the Electoral College. That was a huge deal. And for a senior senator to do that, I think that it set a tone for a lot of other senators. Um, I think that the part of his legacy that's not going to live out well is his climate change denialism. Uh, I think that uh, as we see climate catastrophes already unfolding around the globe, uh, and I believe that's only going to increase. um, I think that his role as chief architect in climate change denialism is going to be something uh, that will be a stain on his legacy moving forward. Um, and, and that's not just going to be with him. I mean, he, he's that doesn't end with his retirement. He's had hundreds of staffers that have come through his office that have gone on to work at the EPA gone on to work in the private sector that are going to cont- continue his way of thinking about uh, climate change and the fact that it doesn't exist and being a, a proponent of uh, just, you know, uh, against clean energy, for the most part, and for fossil fuels, that's going to be part of his legacy. That I think, when we look back, will be a stain on it. I don't think that his entire career has to be that, but that's that's definitely going to be something that the history books will look at.
2: And I think when when we talk about, I mean, uh, any person who has been in serving in public life for as long as Jim Menoff did, I mean, he had very definite opinions. He had very definite uh, ideas that he advanced, and but I think that it's important to remember talking about him. Uh, in terms of his role in the United States Senate, he forged many significant... uh, relationships with Democrats. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, the very thing you're talking about, he and Senator, uh, uh, former uh, Senator Barbara Boxer from California, I mean, they battled for years over EPA issues and and were diametrically opposite on s- on, on much of that, and yet they worked together on some of the most sweeping uh, highway and mm-hmm. um, water projects uh, that we've seen in, in decades. And so um, he was someone who respected the institution, he was someone who respected his colleagues. I mean, it's a it's a playbook that, frankly, any incoming uh, newly elected uh, member of Congress uh, on either side of the aisle should, I think, take note because I think there are a lot of very significant lessons and important lessons that can be learned from the life and legacy
1: of Jim Menhoff as a United States senator. And that's right. The, the respect for those institutions is integral to our democracy uh, and, and understanding that this is. And, you know, too often now we see Republicans and Democrats that don't want to even be seen working together because they're afraid that there's going to be a campaign mail piece that's going to show them. You know, Republicans sitting next to AOC or AOC sitting next to some far-right person, you know, it's going to be used against them. You know, how could you sit with this person that does X, Y, and Z? How could you be in the same room with this person? Because there is this, this sense of purity politics uh, that I think exists on both sides of the aisle right now mm-hmm. um, that that gets in the way of that. And, you know, more more folks, I think you're right, Neva, you know, whether it's Way Mullen or jo- Josh Burkeen, these folks that are assuming new positions in, in Congress and in the United States Senate right now, Respecting these institutions, fighting for these institutions, and believing in collegiality, thats that should be number one and number two in thinking of how to approach these
0: jobs. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org.